Hello, this is Melissa Hale, Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, welcoming back Christopher Filippo. And Enterprise followers are familiar with Chris. They, You first met him through a letter to the editor. He's a man that puts together pieces of history. And he this in, involves, among other things, old gravestones. I'm sure you'll remember he reunited the headstone of Robert Matthews with his son James. Robert's headstone had been a stoop of a barn in Gilderland, and James's had been edging a garden, I think, in Glenmont. And they're now side by side with the other headstones of the family members in Prospect Hill Cemetery. He also has been putting together his own history. He's adopted and became an activist for legislation on making the records, birth certificates, available to the people who were born. And that was passed by both houses. And has the governor signed that yet? He hasn't signed it yet. It has not been delivered to him yet uh, by the legislature. The sponsors of the bill had sent a letter to the governor um, kind of requesting that he request it from them. Um, But that step hasn't been taken yet. There's so many bills, I guess, at the end of a session that that need to be signed, that there there does have to be some kind of order to How it. How frustrating for you. It, it, it definitely <laughs> is immensely frustrating <laughs> yeah. to me and to others uh, because – you know, there are some rules regarding to how bills get sent over, but kind of when they're not in session, it's a little bit more of a, uh, a little bit more opaque, I guess. Elaborate. Yeah. Well, what Chris is here today to talk to us about is town, village, municipal historians. It turns out that 2019 is a hundred year anniversary of what was the first law in the country, in New York, um, to have in each municipality, except I think in New York City, um, a designated historian. And I just looked up a little history, and we're going to learn a lot more. But it was signed by Governor Al Smith on April 11th in 1919. And the New York State historian at the time, James Sullivan, saw it as instrumental to help the Office of State History collect information on the Great War, on World War One. Um, supposed to be the war to end all wars, but we know better now. So, um, Chris is both a volunteer for the New York State Historian and also a trustee for, I think, two very different municipalities, Bethlehem and Lansingburg. Well, uh, to clarify a couple things, I I had been a volunteer for New York State Historian Bob Weibel, and the volunteer work that I did uh, with him sort of wrapped up as he was finishing up there. And when did he finish? Uh, a few years ago, a couple of years ago now. Um, then there was acting state historian uh, Jennifer Lamack, um, who I know, and then after him, Devin Lander. So so how long has Mr. Lander been in that post, do you know? Uh, yep, he was appointed, I don't have all dates in my head, let's see, May May 2016 is when um, okay. Devin Lander was... So three years. Yeah. 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 So, and there there are um, borough historians in New York City, and there's some commun- community historians there. And how did you get involved both in Bethlehem and in Lansingburg? Um, well, uh, here again, Lansingburg, I had been a trustee... Uh, for a long time. I, I resigned kind of earlier this year and then joined the board of the Bethlehem Historical Association. Uh, I had lived in Lansingburg for a while. And this is north in Troy, is that? Yeah, the okay. northern part of Troy. Um, I think, I, is this where Herman Melville's house is? Correct. Okay. Yeah. I've been there because I have a friend who's a Melville scholar, and whenever he visits, we go around to the various sites. But Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, the Lansingburg Historical Society owns the Herman Melville House. And, yeah, Lansingburg had been an uh, independent village and town, but the city of Troy annexed the village of Lansingburg in 1901, and kind of the remainder of the town of Lansingburg was annexed by the town of Scaticoke. 
Oh. Uh, so like from uh, Pleasant Dale up to the Deep Kill, uh, Grant's Hollow. So been. it just got subsumed by these larger. Yeah. But so that seems but like I, it would make the historical society or historian even more important to keep a sense of identity for that place. Right. The The Lansingburg Historical Society was founded in 1965, I think. And at that time, there were people that were still living that, you know, were born in the, the village or the town uh, and wanted to keep a memory of that alive. And at that time also, I mean, there was a, the demolition of the Lansing house in Lansingburg that got a lot of people. Um, was that the active. founder? Of yeah, the, the founder. Uh, the why was it home, demolished? Uh, for a small grocery store, which did not last very long. Oh my. Yeah. And it was a house from, um, 17th century or. Oh yeah, my. It was a, yeah. Lots of times it's when some, it's something, we're about to lose makes people take note and very true and that's that's kind of true of the local government historian program that the historians were concerned about um the loss of records particularly in wartime uh, yeah. when, when records can be lost but um yeah I, I have several generations of ancestors in lansingburg so that's one of the things that made me interested in that but i've been living in the town of bethlehem um, for most of my life. And so. that's got a really active historical society. It does, also we, also founded in the 60s. We had uh, Susan Leith in to talk to us earlier. She's the town historian, Correct. right? Correct, yeah. Yeah, and they, they're just doing so many. She was, at that time, promoting this tour they were doing, and I think they're doing it again very soon, where people were in historical garb to be the founding Slingerland's family, and then other people would you know, citizens, residents would come through and visit the burial site and the house. And it was just kind of an innovative way to literally make history come alive. Right. She's done a number of interesting things. She has a kayak tour that she does even on the Hudson River. Um, and there's a lot going on at the Bethlehem Historical Association. There's um, some painting and electrical work that's going to be done. Uh, we we had... Um, gotten rid of the drop ceiling and kind of remodeling inside the schoolhouse that that we own um and in connection with that i I can mention briefly um we recently acquired over 200 letters from um that had been sent to maria becker of becker's corners in uh the town of bethlehem mostly from the 1850s and 1860s uh from all over the state and some other parts of the country in Canada. Um, and, and who was she? Well, I mean, a daughter of a prominent uh, farmer of the area. Uh, the Becker House still stands in the Becker's Corners area. Um, and she was a school teacher at the Cedar Hill schoolhouse that we own. Um, and the letter with the letters, we also acquired a daguerreotype of her. Oh, neat. And those came from a seller in Maine, but we acquired from a seller in Philadelphia three diaries by Maria Becker uh, from the 1850s and 1860s. No idea how they got separated and went to different states, but we've kind of but reunited them. But how did you them track them down? I mean, how did I, they come back to you? I had, um, you know, I'll occasionally do searches on eBay for, you know, Bethlehem, New York, or, you know, Becker's Corners, New York, or Cedar Hill, New York, things like that, just to get an idea of what what types of items might be out there and what uh, might be a good idea for us to try to acquire. Um, So I had found the letters on uh, eBay from one of those searches. I mentioned it to the president of the Historical Association, Karen Beck, and she thought that they sounded like... uh, a good thing for us to try to acquire in particular because the seller had noted um, that there were a number of letters from Charles Rowley to Maria Becker. Uh, they were engaged, but they never married. Um, that was a fact that the seller had found out from his own research. So they had corresponded like from 1858 to 1861. Uh, he had moved out to Warsaw, uh, Indiana. Um, he had a law practice 
And he was referring to her as my wife, Maria, in his letters. Oh, my. Yeah. And there were, there were 10 letters that were on eBay, and they, they were going to be relatively pricey, you know, and they were all put on uh, separate listings. Um, so I got in touch with the seller to see if maybe he'd be willing to sell them as a batch. Um, and that's when I learned from the seller that, no, actually, there were over 100 uh, letters and he'd be willing to, you know, let us buy um, the 10, I think, that he had put online for, for a certain price along with the daguerreotype. And he'd send on spec kind of the rest of the letters just trusting us so that we could share them with the rest of the, the board of trustees to see if it was something we wanted to acquire. So when I actually inventoried the letters, it turned out there were over 200. Oh, um, so like twice what the seller had thought. Um, a lot of them are. Did you let the seller know this? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, he knew he knew there was over a hundred. Yeah. you know, and and we did give him a, a, a good price. That um, can you reveal the price? Uh, I don't remember the number offhand. I, I have a number yeah. of different numbers going around in my head because there was also the the diaries that were acquired from a seller that was on Abe Books, uh, the used book site. So, but. Um, well, can you describe the physical letters, what they look like? I mean, um, you know, and some of the old handwriting just kind of gives you chills. Yeah, I mean, but, it's cursive, which I yeah. guess they don't really teach so much anymore. Um, I, I find most of them to be fairly readable. Um, there, there's some words that I have to look at for a while, particularly some of the capital letters. Uh, some of the writers had uh, unusual ways of writing them. Um, and are they in envelopes at this stage? Some of them are in envelopes. Uh, some of them are, are folded up um, and not in envelopes. Most of the envelopes had the stamps removed uh, from them by some collector, I guess, over the years. Um, some of the envelopes were actually sent through the mail. There's enough of the postmark left that you can tell that. Um, some of the envelopes seem to have been delivered uh, in person. Um, I, I don't know, passed on to a friend who was going to be heading to someone's house. So the content of these letters, are they, you know, a kind of like the everyday, <laughs> the sun is shining today, I went for a walk with my mother, I, or do they have like pieces of history, what we think of history? Definitely pieces of history. That's... Um, that was a big part of why we thought that they would be uh, like. A, what are the, some of the things you gleaned? Well, I, it, there's a range of correspondence. Some of them are people that she had gone to school with. Um, there's at least one letter from a former teacher of hers. Um, at least one from a student of hers. You know, immediate relatives, more distant relatives. Um, there. are a uh, few letters from a cousin of hers um, from his regiment uh, during the Civil War. Like he's oh. writing her from, you know, a steamer en route to points in the south or, you know, at or near a fort or a camp that they're heading to. So um, that will definitely be of interest, like beyond the Bethlehem Historical Association, like the local Civil War Roundtable, I imagine, will be interested in in that. Um, there, there does seem to be a fair amount of detail about family in the letters, like um, that we'll we'll get a, a better picture of the the size of these families and how they connect to other other families. Um, there, there are some funny things. There, there was a letter from um, one of Maria Becker's female friends where she said that she had recently been to the Hollow Church, the Queeman's Hollow Church, and that she had a headache afterwards, and she wasn't sure if it was the vociferous preaching that <laughs> gave her the headache or if it was looking at all the gentlemen, and she writes, uh, "Which which do you think?" Oh, <laughs> you know? oh gosh! Uh, so there there are cute things like that. There's some enclosures in the letters. There's printed um, wedding invitations, uh, printed invitations to social clubs at a music hall. Um, there were some clippings from newspapers, like um, Charles Rowley, who had wanted to marry her, like he had 
clipped something about like the definitions of a husband and wife or kind of what uh, the benefit of, you know, the, of, of having a wife is or family. Was there anything more romantic than that? <laughs> uh, yes. Okay. Yeah. No, there definitely was. Uh, <laughs> there, there was. And unfortunately, there's not a lot of letters from her uh, in the collection. It's mostly letters that she received. But, if you, but there if, are some drafts that she wrote. Oh. Um, yeah, and possibly some that are copies, maybe, of things that she had sent, handwritten copies. But if you put side by side the letters she was receiving with the diary she was keeping, can you find out, like, interesting insights? To, to some extent, yeah. The, the, there is an overlap with the diaries. We don't the the diaries are kind of they're they're for three different years and they're not all consecutive and there were probably other diaries that she kept um, that that weren't um, part of what the seller had um, but it will definitely fill in some pieces and I even found online like somebody else had some letters um, of hers how so, fascinating just the- yeah diaspora of yeah they, they spread out but yeah. we've kind of gathered them together Maine, and philadelphia and now they're back and in the same schoolhouse where she taught that's right. just really neat that's yeah. such a beautiful schoolhouse i went there for um a tribal historian for the mohegans who i guess are now mostly located in wisconsin came and gave a presentation mm-hmm. there but um it's just a beautiful structure that schoolhouse yeah but um was this woman particularly prolific, or was this just typical of the time? You know, we communicate now so differently, but I guess in the mid-1800s, the letter writing would have been the key way to stay right. in touch. Yeah, um, that's tough to say. I, I don't feel qualified to say. I mean, she does seem to be fairly prolific. The fact that she was a school teacher, I guess, um made her more of a literate sort of person, more interested in kind of reading and writing. And some of the letters, um, I mean, Rowley and Becker were writing to each other pretty frequently. I mean, almost like receive a letter, send, send a letter right back. Um, so, um, Doesn't it make you wonder what happened, why they didn't get married? I don't entirely know. I, I get the impression that she was m- more inclined to stay in the area with her family and friends, that, that the idea of kind of moving out west maybe was something that she wasn't um, ready to do. Because that was really a frontier then. Uh, yeah, uh, to some extent. I mean, more so Indiana. I don't think it was a particularly a big place. Um, he did also work in Chicago for a while. What did he do? He was a lawyer. Yeah. But, uh, while he was there and corresponding with her, she met, um, Phil Miller from East Greenbush and there's quite a few letters from him as well. And she ended up romantic. I'm getting really interested uh, in this. More and more so over (laughs) time. Yeah. And uh, the two of them. Well, did she ever marry at all? She married Phil Miller. Oh, she did? Oh, oh, wow. Yeah. And there were, um, I think she had met Rowley kind of, oh, somewhere west of us, like in Tompkins County, I think, where she had maybe a relative and he had a friend. That was maybe one of her relatives, something like that. So what is the Historical Society going to do with these letters? Um, well, I, I got in touch with um, um, Jennifer Lamack, actually, um, for some advice about preservation. And she was the one you said was the acting state historian. She had been, yeah. right. Um, and she put me in touch with somebody from the archives that that's willing to give us some advice about preservation because we don't have a collection quite like this, you know, just huge number of letters. Like do we unfold the letters and keep them in an unfolded state or do we leave them the way we found them? Uh, We definitely want to um, digitally scan or photograph all of them and transcribe them. And potentially that'll be a way that we'll be able to get members uh, more involved, that we could share the scans of the letters uh, and members could um, be a part of the project, that they could transcribe them um, and 
I think that would be nice. Like, members don't often have an opportunity to be involved in that kind of thing. And plus, the big advantage is anyone can do research anywhere in the world on it then, you know, once they're, you post them online, once you scan them. Right. Yeah, and you don't have to worry about crumbling paper and all of that because... Yeah, most of, most of the paper is held up really well, like older newspapers, I think. It's probably a sort of a pulp not not like um, the paper now. Only in a few cases are are they sort of brittle. Uh, only in a few cases has the the writing become really faint. There there were a couple interesting letters um, that were written in a way that I'd read about, but I hadn't actually seen. When the writer ran out of space on the piece of paper, um, they turned the paper ninety degrees and. And wrote additional oh, lines that yeah. way. Yeah, sort of I have some letters like that writing. from World War One from my grandfather, just because there was so yeah. shortage of paper, and you have to read them both ways. So people back then would have been more experienced with that. Those are going to be a little more difficult, I think, for yeah. us to read. Yeah, you know, trying to um, puzzle puzzle out how they separate. And some of the handwriting is just exquisite and minute too. Very very tiny handwriting. Um, I, I find it just thrilling to hold. I went to a college that had the Barrett Browning love letter collection, and also the door that they passed them through. Uh, and when you just hold hold those in your hand, and you feel a connection to people that you wouldn't, I think, if you were just like reading them reprinted in a book somewhere or something. You know, I, I agree. I. I, I I especially found it in, interesting with respect to some of the enclosures. Like one of the letters, one of the smallest envelopes actually had, um, you know, a, a note in it and um, like a pledge to marry, like on a scrap of paper. And this uh, was to the man she didn't marry. Uh, well, it was a pledge by him to marry her, right. the man, who she didn't marry, right? Um, and there were little torn bits of newspaper um, in which little items were wrapped up, like one of them as I unfolded it. Um, there was a pressed flower there. Uh, and another one when I unwrapped it, there were three um, differently colored bits of cellophane, like little dots. And you have no, no idea, idea what, what it the means. Me- yeah, I mean, maybe it was like um, some kind of confetti from a celebration or... Yeah, I, I yeah. don't know. Yeah, it makes me think of little things I've tucked away. <laughs> you just wonder what people would think in a later generation. Well, this has been a fascinating deep dive into one collection. I also want to kind of, you know, pump your brain on the larger history of historians. Um, yeah, I, I did make... Um some notes about kind of oh the, yeah go ahead the history of enlighten us yeah um, like 1790 is when the first historical society was founded in and the where? United States uh, in Massachusetts and it had um, sort of a broad interest in history so they did collect things uh, beyond just Massachusetts and um, the history of our country was so very young then that um, right. yeah. Um, the New York Historical Society founded in 1805, and I mentioned the dates like not so people try to remember them, but just to show kind of the range of time, I guess. Yeah, uh, and over. do you know what the impetus was in 1805? Why suddenly people thought? Well, I mean, I think part of it was kind of they looked at the founding in the other state of historical society and said, well, you know, New York really <laughs> Massachusetts can do this, its, so can exactly. we. Okay. Yeah. Um, 1818 is when the New York State Library was founded. Uh, 1836, the New York State Museum. Um, 1862, the Bureau of Military Record. Uh, this was something in Albany where, you know, as, as from the title, they were collecting military records, but they were also collecting military relics, uh, which they would put on display uh, in Albany. Um, so it was sort of a, a military-themed museum and, and library. Um, 1895... Wait, do the relics from that still exist? I think maybe some of them yeah. may have, but, you know, there there was a problem, of course, of the Capitol fire right. uh, in, in 1911, uh, in which so much was lost, because um, at that time, the 
um, the library was in the Capitol building, mm-hmm. um, and they had uh, museum items in, in the Capitol as well. Um, 1895 is when the first law for a New York State historian was passed. And let's see, Hugh Hastings was the first uh, New York State historian, and he was actually a journalist, um, n- not a historian. Well, journalism is the first take of history. Right. So, I, yeah. I thought there, there's a quote I have um, I thought that you might find interesting. Yeah. Um, and this is actually from 1866 um, with respect to the Bureau of uh, Military Record. And they note that um, of newspapers as an element of history, Mr. Greeley, in his American Conflict, justly says, Today the history of our country is found recorded in her journals more fully, promptly, vividly than elsewhere. A history which takes no account of what was said by the press in memorable emergencies befits an earlier age than ours. Um, oh, Horace Greeley, go. That's great. <laughs> yeah. So um, there was some thought to a historical museum, um, 1869, merging it with the, the Bureau of Military Record, and they were talking about um, possibly having a state historian at that time, 1869, but for whatever reason, uh, no bill uh, with respect to that had passed. So 1895 is when the first state historian um, was created, and he was um, interested in collecting records and getting them published. Um, He had an office in one of the towers, at the top of one of the towers of the Capitol building. Um, Nice perch. Yeah, I mean, those. I've taken Capitol tours. Those towers are not part of the tour, uh, at least not any tour that I had taken, unfortunately. And Hugh Hastings, who was uh, the first um, New York State historian, in 1897, he had come up with the idea for um, regimental recorders. Um, he... In looking at military records, he was um, dissatisfied by the quality of some of them and um, the absence of some of the records. So what he wanted to do was have non-combatants in military companies who would be um, recording all the information about what was going on and sending them back. Um, and that, that idea was not actually implemented. Like he got a lot of feedback from generals, some positive and some negative, you know, kind of like the idea of embedded journalists, I mm-hmm. guess, in a way mm-hmm. that we had in the, uh, the Gulf War. Ar- around the same time, um, Brooklyn um, had a state law passed for there to be a Brooklyn historian um, who who actively went around, had a good budget for going around and collecting records about the history of Brooklyn. Um, so the idea of a local historian is something that predates the 1919 law. Um, it, it was something that was essentially percolating for a while. Um, one, one of the f- interesting things about the, the state historian, for a while, um, New York State had as it does now, a blue flag. And then for a few years, it turned to a buff-colored background on the flag, like a a light yellow color. Um, But then the state historian uh, himself uh, was active in getting it turned back to blue. Do we know why it went to buff intermittently? (laughs) Who makes those decisions on the state flag? Yeah, New York had... Um, of course, used both colors, the, the blue and the buff, like the, the state historical markers were kind of described as that, even though the, the yellow on the historical markers I, I would describe as mm-hmm. yeah, brighter and, and um, maybe a little darker than, than buff. But they, they were the colors of uh, some of the uniforms, I guess, in the Revolutionary War New York regiments. Oh, I never knew that. Um, why they, I'm not sure exactly why they changed it to buff, but kind of the reasoning about changing it back was that kind of the buff um, quickly would fade from the light yellow to white, um, and white is associated with surrender, 
you know, a yellow color or white color was associated with plague flags, things mm. like that. So there were, there were bad associations, he felt, and uh, was more interested in going back to the, the original color. Um, so 1895, again, was when the, the state historian's office was created, and he was given the task of gathering official records, memoranda, and data uh, relating to colonial wars, the War of the Revolution, the War of 1812, the Mexican War, the War of the Rebellion, together with all official correspondence of a diplomatic character between this commonwealth and other colonies. So the the state historian's office has always been strongly associated with military records, even though it's not specific to that. Yeah, and I read that James Sullivan, in pushing for the 100-year-old law, was interested in, you know, collecting the military service of the people in World War One. But that's why I thought what you were talking about much earlier about the the school teacher with her letters is so much of history traditionally in this country has been about wars and that kind of history. And there's this whole other side. I tend to unfortunately think of it as male and female history, you know, the, the wars and the dates and those kinds of things versus what's happening culturally you know, and it seems like they're both very important. Right. Well, the the 1919 law um, creating the local government historians um, went along with another law passed the same year for collecting the history of the war. And they were interested not just in the military records. I mean, there was certainly a lot of emphasis on that. Um, but they were interested in what was being done on the home front. Also, so um, Red Cross part of the war effort to support, yeah, things like that. So it wasn't limited to um, war. And I have a theory that the um, women obtaining suffrage around the same time Mm -hmm. um, may have influenced in in some. Uh, degree the idea for local historians, because a lot of the earliest local government historians were women, um, probably a lot of them coming out of the DAR because uh, local DAR chapters would have uh, someone designated as a historian of the chapter. And I know at least some of those early historians were um, women from the DAR. And they were involved in um, a lot of projects that the state historian was interested in over the years. Like, again, turning back the clock to um, 1912, there was a law passed that um, the state, like any um, abandoned cemeteries, I guess, in the state, like if they were going to be um, moving them, you know, as sometimes happens, mm-hmm. uh, like with Albany. Albany Rural Cemetery, there was um, all the cemeteries that had been in what's now Washington Park that were moved out to uh, Albany Rural Cemetery. They, they There was a law where people should report um, transcriptions, you know, from gravestones to the state historian. And it was never much followed. Um, that was something that he, uh, the state historian wrote um, – town clerks and village clerks trying to get them to send him that information. And he went even kind of beyond uh, the law kind of and said, like, could you do this for all of the cemeteries, Mm. like not just sort of abandoned ones? Uh, And can you also tell me what kind of uh, local history records you have? And And he got just, you know, hardly any responses to this letter. So I think um, there, there were a number of, little attempts like that where the state historian was trying to get information about local history and wasn't um, really succeeding at it. And so with the 1919 law where there was a requirement that the the local historians report to the state historian, they were hoping that that would be a little more successful than some of those earlier attempts like in sending just cemetery records. and I had gotten involved in looking at the the um, local government historian's annual reports uh, to the state historian in a sort of roundabout way. A number of years ago, I had tried applying for a job as a village and town historian in Mayfield, New York, 
um, I had seen a listing on monster.com and was like, that would be a really interesting (laughs) job. Like it was just a a part-time job, uh, that would really not pay very much. Um, yeah, I sense a lot of the people in our area, the historians do it as a labor of love. Yeah. A lot of them, they don't get paid anything or it's just sort of a, a very small amount, or maybe they're given a very small amount for uh, an office budget. Um, it, it's rare that even though it is a, um, you are a village or town official, but no, it's just not a living wage that mm-hmm. any of them get. And as a consequence, a lot of the people are retired, um, people that get, get involved as, um, municipal historians, but, uh, in the course of trying to figure out beyond what the job listing said about, um, what a village and town historian does. I did a little research, you know, I found the law itself, uh, some information on the New York state museum website. Yes. And you pointed me to that and I can just read what the law says. The duties are research and writing, teaching and public presentations, historic preservation, organization, advocacy, advocacy, and tourism promotion. So, it's kind of a broad umbrella there. And yeah, very broad. And there, there's only a few like specific responsibilities that are, are mentioned in the law. Most of them are sort of general. Like one of the things that was mentioned, um, you know, involvement in historical markers, um, making sure that records are safe, uh, you know, in fireproof kind of areas. Um, so I did not actually get the job as the village and town historian. Um, the wife of a former village president got the job. <laughs> <laughs> I think that happens a lot. There's political yeah, influence in yeah. these appointments. They, yeah. um, I did get interviewed by uh, some of the people there, so I got that far at least. But you know, I, I had gotten more interested, okay, well, what are these annual reports? Like, I hadn't actually seen one. So I wrote the New York State Library to see if, um, you know, I could look at them there. And they said, oh, well, they're actually in the office of the state historian, so you have to get in touch with them. They're not publicly available. Um, so I got in touch with the state historian, Bob Weibel, at that time, and he said, yeah, I can make an appointment to meet with you Um so that you can look at some of those annual reports. And he said something about the, you know, they're not all necessarily in order or whatever. And I said, well, I have some time to volunteer. I've volunteered for the library before. Um, so when I met him, he had a volunteer coordinator with him. Uh, and they, they were in file cabinets kind of in a windowless basement room along with some of the chartering records, like um, Historical Society uh, has to send in reports uh, to New York State Museum chartering. And they were alphabetized, but he said, like, more recent records had not been collated with the older ones. Um, And as I started looking at the folders, like, some of the municipalities had empty folders, and I didn't find any folders, really, that had uh, records going back much further than the 1970s, like there were some 60s ones, but relatively rare. And earlier than that, uh, only occasionally some correspondence, but not the reports. Like there might be like a um, a note that somebody had been appointed to the office. Um, so it turns out at some point, uh, a lot of the older annual reports at the state historian's office sort of disappeared and it's not known exactly what happened to them. Um, the history of the state historian's office is sort of a complicated one uh, with more politics involved than you would think. Like originally, it was the governor that would appoint the state historian, um, but in 1911, um, there was a, a powerful commissioner of education, Andrew Draper, and he took the state historian's office, he, he got a bill um, put into the legislature that would bring the state historian into the Department of Education. Is that where it is today? Uh, it is under NYSED, yeah. yeah. Um, and then that bill that Draper passed was kind of pushing away the, the state historian's own bill that would have 
created actually a sort of a local historian network at that time in 1911. Um, and he was quite irked about that. So personality conflicts, yeah, you know, sort of you also have the fire around that time. And Victor Hugo Palsides, he was the state historian at that time. Like he was, um, very disturbed about the condition of records in many places. Well, so just to go back to out. that with these missing records, where today in this modern computer era, are they now digital, the annual reports? Are no, they-, they haven't They haven't been digitized. Like I, I was involved in kind of collating the more recent records with um, the older ones. And over the course of the time that I was volunteering there, like occasionally boxes would show up from who knows where of some <laughs> other relevant records. But are, are the historians still filing these annual reports today? They are, yeah. And, they, are they filing them on paper, not on... Oh, there is the option now, uh, and I, I believe they prefer it, of, of doing it through yeah, the, the website. it seems yeah. like going forward, that would make the job much easier. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah, the um, compliance was really varied over the years because um, often the municipalities, they don't know that they're supposed to appoint a historian or they do know they're supposed to appoint a historian, but they don't know what the historian does. And they don't know even that it's a state law. Like they just sort of keep appointing a local historian because they think that's what local government does but it's actually a state law yeah well that's why i wanted to do this podcast so people would be aware in our coverage area it seems almost entirely up to the individual historian they do so many different kinds of things with it you know it's there's a lot of freedom in it um the the state historian is supposed to annually give the local historian some idea of a project to work on um in earlier years there were forms that would be sent to the the local historians with a number of questions on it um you know asking them if they did certain things or encouraging them to do certain things um and during that time period um one of the most prominent people to be a state or to be a local government historian was Franklin Delano Roosevelt uh who was the uh town historian for Hyde Park Lucky Hyde Park. <laughs> yeah. So those, thankfully, uh, his reports were pulled out at some point and put in a separate uh, Roosevelt collection. Yeah. Oh, that's good. So I did. I got. I got. I was able to look at those. But um, other early records, like you know, there's a whole 1919, almost like up into the 1970s, where um, they don't have very much. Uh, at the state historian's office. It just seems like office. such a cruel irony that the people that are the keepers of history can't have their own history, <laughs> doesn't it? I mean, it, it is. I, I found it sad, and I, I was hoping, kind of, as the nineteen nineteen uh, the anniversary um, came up this year, that maybe something would be done to see, like, well, you know, county historians, like, do some of them have some of those older reports, maybe from the, you know, or at the town level or the village level, do they, you know, because presumably they would keep one copy for themselves and send one copy to the state historian. Um, But, you know, even at the local level, I suspect that happens too, like records vanish, you know. When a new historian comes in, the old historian doesn't necessarily turn the records over. They do most of the time, but uh, there are problems that happen sometimes yeah. uh, where that doesn't happen. Well, one of the sites you had pointed me to, it was, um, and because we're running out of time, I just kind of wanted to close out with your thoughts on this. It was the Association of Public Historians of New York State, and they had on there a presentation that the state historian had given um, recently, David Lander, and it just, so many people... I think don't think of history as important. And he had isolated these seven ways that history is essential. (laughs) I'm just going to not do his, you know, background on it, but just the topics and see if you have any kind of clothing, closing thoughts on this, because one is identity, he said. Um, that it enables people to discover their own place in the stories of their community. 
The second is critical skills, that it teaches independent thinking. And he had this whole, you know, explanation of that. The third is it, it adds vitality to places where you live and work. The fourth was economic development. Um, then engaged citizens, um, which is something I think we're desperately in need of these days myself. The sixth was leadership because it can inspire local leaders. And the seventh was legacy, um, that history saved and preserved is crucial to preserving democracy for the future by explaining our shared past. And all those elements that I feel are so important often just get... uh, brushed aside in a kind of modern uh, culture that we live in. I don't know if you have closing thoughts on the value of history, because you seem to be a man that spent a lot of time, energy, brain power in looking at history. Yeah, I... um Victor Hugo Palsitz, kind of when he was the state historian, when he was looking at kind of records that were destroyed, he he felt that often the um, government officials were concerned mainly with the utility of of paperwork for whatever is happening now, you mm-hmm. know, and mm-hmm. anything like in the past is past. You don't need to worry about it anymore. It's just taking up space. Get rid of it. Um, but like James Sullivan, whose ideas were very similar and who was the historian when the local government historian program was created, um, he associated local history very strongly with patriotism um, and that sense of place, I think, that kind of knowledge about the history of the place that you're living will make you a better citizen, um, both locally and nationally. And he was um, concerned a lot with kind of the fluidity of population, that kind of people were not living their whole lives in the same town uh, that they were born in anymore, Mm -hmm. and that it would take education to uh, help uh, people moving from other communities, whether they're just moving from one town over or from across the state or from abroad, that they really needed um, to be taught about the history of the place that they're in so that they care about the place that they're in, so that they care about the country at large. And um, I think there's something to that. You know, I I think to some extent he took it to some extremes. Um, But he... um, he definitely had great ambitions for the the idea of the local historian program and was really hoping that kind of um, it would help the Office of State History could sort of become a clearinghouse for local history and in turn help um, create better local uh, like state history education in the schools. And that hasn't quite happened. Mm-mm. You know, there there isn't... Um, a smooth line of communication from local historian to state historian to education. Um, Again, it seems so up to the individual. When I was a school child in Gilderland here, Arthur Gregg was the Gilderland town historian, and I remember him as a snowy-haired, white, you know, white-haired old man that would come in and he would tell us about Gilderland history. And I was a kid that played in the hunger kill and had found these pieces of glass and you know, here I learned there was a glassworks there, you know, in the 1700s. Hmm. But it just seems to be up to the the individual local historian. There's no sense of having it, you know, New York education is so driven from the top down. (laughs) It doesn't seem to have reached out across. There's more work to be done there. Yeah. 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 Um, And of course, one of the one of the challenges is that it's an unfunded mandate, you know, a state law. There's no state funds that are, are given to local government historians. There's no, you know, little money available to them at the municipal level. Um, so it, it requires really passionate people uh, in the job. And, and fortunately, there often have been some very passionate people. Occasionally, I had seen some of the annual reports where the local historian wrote, 
uh, I didn't do anything this year because I'm not paid anything. Uh, (laughs) It's like, well, you know, why don't you let somebody else have that job? I know. know. Well, one thing, too, another 100-year anniversary that I discovered is there was a journal that was formed 100 years ago with a different name, but now... This past summer, they put out the, um, what is it, the Cornell University Press got together with the New York State Museum, and they put together an actual printed journal um, with a lot of interesting topics. So maybe that's one good thing going forward that people can read and think about, at least. I don't know. Yeah, and I mean, the state historian um, does have a webpage on the, on the New York State Museum's website and has kind of updates there. Um, and some of the local historians do have on their municipal websites, they have um, their own pages in some municipalities, not all of them. So give us, for our final closeout thought, why it matters, why local history matters. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> gosh, it, that's kind of hard. I mean, I was brought up in a way that I always cared about it because my parents kind of were taking my brother and I to museums and uh, historic houses. Um, I, I, I think it, it it matters in part because it, it does help you, help you um, be more involved in your community. Like if you, there, there's opportunities for people to volunteer um, either as a municipal uh, historian uh, or with a local historical society. And those are definitely things to encourage young people to get involved with. Um, there used to be in the past the New York State Historical Association, they had something called the Yorkers, which was... I was a member of the Yorker Club. Okay, great. <laughs> in high school, yeah, yes. Yeah, there, it was sort of a statewide uh, network where they would have clubs at, yeah. at uh, middle schools and high schools, high schools I think. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a journal for them uh, published and something happened and it just went away. I think there might be some local chapters that still exist just without the the statewide support, but I'd love to see something like that come back. And um, I had actually written a proposal to state historian Bob Weibel um, that there, there were so many um, local government historian offices where nobody had been appointed. And I thought that something that they could try doing would be to have like a exceptional student, you know, in that community, like somebody's really good at history in in their high school, you know, give them the opportunity to be um, the local government historian. And that's something that would help that student also, um, you know, on an application to college or something like they could say, this is something that I've done or, uh, you know, help build a resume for them. Because, I mean, when when the job is one that um, generally doesn't pay, you know, either retirees uh, are going to often take it, but students, you know, there would be room for them to take it too. So, I think that's a great idea. Yeah. We'll close out on that, and thank you for sharing all of this. Oh, well, thank you.